I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, where it's going. Each week we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at consminds at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 105, we read On Liberty, a philosophical essay by John Stuart Mill, published in 1859. John Stuart Mill was born in London, 1806, the eldest son of economist James Mill. He was taught Greek at the age of three and Latin by age eight. And by the time he reached young adulthood, he was known as a formidable intellectual. He became a colonial administrator for the East India Company at age 17, remaining there for 25 years. After leaving the company, Mill served as Lord Rector of the University of St. Andrews and as a member of Parliament became known as one of the foremost proponents of liberty and utilitarianism. He died in 1873 in Avignon, France. All right, so John Stuart Mill says, the subject of this essay is the nature and limits of the power which can be legitimately exercised by society over the individual. The struggle between liberty and authority, he says, is the central feature of history. And he starts by sort of clearing the air, saying that by liberty... What he really wants to talk about is not necessarily liberty from government, because he'll start by saying, the aim of patriots was to set limits to the power which the rulers should be suffered to exercise over the community, and this limitation was what they meant by liberty. It was attempted in two ways, first by obtaining recognition of certain immunities called political liberties or rights, which was to be regarded as a breach of duty in the ruler to infringe. Second, and generally a later expedient, was the establishment of constitutional checks by which the consent of the community or of a body of some sort supposed to represent the interest was made a necessary condition to some of the more important acts of a governing power. So obviously by 1859, the U.S. founding was 75 years old or so. Mm. And so a lot of these thoughts were already out there. So he almost starts by saying that's what has meant, been meant by liberty, but it's almost like he wants to talk about a few other things. And I think some of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight are – Social tyranny, uh, tyranny of the majority is a term that I think he coined, uh, kind of class control and customs. And in many ways, this is kind of a proto, well, later Jeremy Bentham will describe and invent the idea of the panopticon, that, uh, that innovative jail where there's a high tower in the middle with glass that you that you can't see through that basically keeps people in their cells because they don't know if they're being watched or not. And Michel Foucault will take that and run with it. Mm -hmm. But it's the idea of what's the power of social control to, uh, to limit Liberty. And I think, uh, he's got a lot of that to talk about. That's pretty interesting. He does. And it's, you can, you can see a lot of, I mean, this is definitely the sort of grandfather of, of libertarianism here. Um, you know, we've read a lot of books from the left and, you know, and, and mixing it in with our usual books from the right. I'm not sure which side Mill comes on. I, I think yeah. more left than right, but, all, you know, I mean, sometimes liberty is tough that way. And, and, he's, and he, when he talks about liberty, he's pretty serious. He says, the sole end for which mankind are warranted, individually or collectively, in interfering with the liberty of action of any of their number is self-protection. Mm-hmm that the only purpose for which power can rightfully be exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. And he's very clear that it means that doesn't mean to prevent harm 
for himself. You know, we he doesn't think it, it's it's just for a government to protect its citizens, and you know that's that's a very libertarian sentiment. And you know, depending on the issue, you'll find right wingers on one side and left wingers on the other, and then sometimes it sometimes it flips. But he's talking about really, um, it's sort of it's sort of Lockean, although he says some. I think he does say some things in here that sort of suggest he's questioning Locke's whole social contract idea. But um, it's this idea that if you're you're in a society, but you're still really guaranteed, you should be guaranteed your maximum liberty, except to the extent you start hurting other people. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, that's probably the, I mean, I, I don't want to say that's anarchist, because it's not quite anarchist. I mean, and as he goes on, he, they're, he kind of explains it in ways that are that sound less extreme than that, but it's definitely a a very thoroughgoing explanation of of utmost liberty, and uh, and you can see where a lot of ideas that that followed came from from this thesis. Yeah, it's a utilitarian ethics, and he does have a separate work called Utilitarianism that maybe sometime we'll read. And I did read it in college, but to be honest with you, I've forgotten <laughs> basically <laughs> all of it. But um, yeah, the idea, he says, I regard utility as the ultimate appeal on all ethical questions. But it must be utility in the largest sense, grounded in the permanent interests of man as a progressive being. And what he means by utility, of course, is uh, it's it's almost like a cost-benefit analysis. If it's if the, if the benefit outweighs the cost, then it has utility. And there's a sphere of action in which, this, in which society is distinguished from the individual, has, if any, only an indirect interest comprehending all that portion of a person's life and conduct which affects only himself, or if it affects others only with their free, voluntary, and undeceived consent and participation. <clears throat> this gets at what you were talking about. I think that uh, his, uh, his utilitarian approach is essentially that um, we're going to let individuals do whatever they want as long as it's not hurting somebody else. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to society as a whole, the way that we should behave is does it does the benefit outweigh the cost? In other words, is there is there more benefit to to people than than there is harm done? And you know, we don't need a he did, he doesn't really develop it here, and he does develop it in his other works. So we could save it for another time. But but I mean, it's uh, obviously it becomes any any conversation about ethics becomes tricky because you can easily find uh, some sort of like. Uh, confounding or conundrum (laughs) you're like well is it better to kill like uh well i mean we're talking about abortion right now is is it better to kill a million babies than it is um does that does that create more utility and benefit to society than the harm caused to mothers who who raise children that don't who don't want those children or something yeah that's the problem with i mean when you get into utilitarianism is it, it it's it's definitely an amoral system and I, I don't, it's not to say immoral necessarily, but it's definitely a, everything's a cost-benefit analysis. Everything is trying to weigh things impartially. You know, there's no, uh, there's no really room for traditional morality in any of it. And some people like that. I mean, I think, I think Mill fits into what we would in modern times call neoliberalism, maybe just sort of trying to create a sort of society where, you know, I mean, you hear a lot of talk about victimless crimes. That's why drug use should be legal. You're only hurting yourself, or you know, prostitution should be legal. That sort of thing. It it, it is definitely an individual-centered utility, and 
That's why he says over over himself, over his own mind and body, the individual is sovereign. I can tell you that that I read some of this in college too, and like you, I don't totally remember <laughs> all of it because uh, that's that's how it is back then. Um, but that's definitely the sort of thing that would have appealed to me when I was nineteen, and part of it still does, right? I mean, the individual should be sovereign over his own mind, of course, but at the same time, if I do harm to myself. I'm I'm harming my family too, you know, mm-hmm. and that's I think as, especially as you, you know, as people marry and and become parents, you you sort of see that a little differently. You sort of start to see that oh sure we should I mean it is a free country that's I probably say that once a day, and it is and it should be, but our actions even things that look like the sort of things Mill would say a, a man deserves absolute liberty on, well. Yes and no. I mean, because it, when you when you mess yourself up, you're you're not, not we're not atoms, you know, floating free. We're we're kind of formed into molecules we call families and, and communities, and that's dragging one down can can harm others because we all we have feelings for each other too, and we also depend on each other. So it's it it's one of those. Um, I mean, it's a sort of utopian individualism, which I think is part of what places Mill to the left of most of what we read but from a from an unusual angle i mean from the from just the radical individualist angle and so he tries to answer some of the some of the criticisms or or at least make sense of some of the anomalies because as you said does it really harm others for you to do drugs does it really harm others for for you to prostitute yourself well he says, there are many acts which, being directly injurious only to the agents themselves, ought not to be legally interdicted, but which, if done publicly, are a violation of good manners, and mm-hmm. coming thus within the category of offenses against others may rightfully be, pre- be prohibited. For Fornication, for example, must be tolerated, and so must gambling. But should a, pers- for a person be free to be a pimp or to keep a gambling house? Um, he's basically saying that the interest of these dealers in promoting intemperance or, or pimping is a real evil and justifies the state in imposing restrictions and requiring guarantees. So even, uh, even, even he, he won't go all the way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> even he won't go the entire uh, distance for libertarians of, well, who does it hurt? Well, it actually does hurt. It does actually have uh, knockoff effects if we allow for gambling or if we allow for, for pro- uh, prostitution and so forth. So, and uh, he had a really interesting argument about taxing, st- taxing stimulants, but let's just say taxing uh, cigarettes or alcohol or something like that. I mean, obviously, tax cigarettes are taxed heavily. Mm-hmm. I mean, half the price or more of a pack of cigarettes would be in ta- would be taxes. And you'd think that he'd say, well, he starts out by saying to to tax stimulants for the sole purpose of making them more difficult to be obtained is a measure differing only in degree from their entire prohibition. In other words, like if you're going to tax it out of existence, you might as it, that's really no different than prohibiting it. And so you've you've violated this uh, utilitarian ethic. But then he goes on in a quite lengthy discussion, thinking through it, where he basically says, "But on the other hand, uh, governments are going to have to tax something." They might yeah. as well tax something that people don't like. <laughs> and so taxation of stimulants, he says, up to the point which produces the largest amount of revenue is admissible and probably approved. You know, <laughs> so, so you're yeah. kind of like, okay, well, all right. So it looks like you can tax cigarettes. <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, that's some, that's a that's definitely a discussion that could come out of our own time. I've heard so many people say, oh, "We got to legalize drugs and just tax them," you know. And it's well, there's it a good source of tax, I guess. Although, I mean, I think some of the places that have legalized marijuana, there's still the the old style trade in marijuana is still happening because if you put the taxes high enough, yeah, we're gonna you know, just like people will smuggle cigarettes from the southern states to the northern states because they're cheap in South Carolina and they're expensive in New York City. Yeah, and right. that. That happens. Um, <laughs> I mean, today we would say uh, if you tax something, you'll get less of it. If you subsidize, you'll get more of it. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially. But for him, he 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 doesn't. He actually doesn't approve of get t- getting less of it. He just approves of the idea that, well, we're going to have to tax, and you know, I'd much rather them. I'd much rather the cigarette smokers get taxed than than me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I hear a lot of people saying that here in twenty twenty two. He also talks about uh, the idea that if everything is legal except your harm to others, should you be able to sell yourself into slavery? Now, this was, I mean, that's it's not something that really happened in America, but in, in Roman times, it definitely did. I mean, you know, I guess if people were so destitute, they were going to starve and say, well, this at least I'll get food. You know, that was just sort of a life or death choice. But, uh, Bill says that that's one thing that you probably should ban. He says the principle of freedom cannot require that he should be free not to be free. It's not freedom mm-hmm. to be allowed to alienate his freedom. That's complicated, but I, I get what he's saying. It's there are limits, and you know, it's that's sort of you could argue if you're going along this line of well, it's no harm to anybody else. That it is no harm to anybody, especially if we're talking about Roman style slavery, which was not like the hereditary slavery of uh the american system you know somebody could do that and he would sell himself to slavery but his his children would not necessarily be in that same situation mm-hmm. but yeah even even for mill who was willing to allow a lot of things this is yeah th- this goes too far uh, you know freedom freedom has to be a rule in itself and that, that's imposing a choice and I, I imagine there there might have been somebody even more libertarian than he back in those days who said, "Well, hold on now," but that that is uh, that is one limit he's willing to set on. Also, he mentions the idea that children and uh, I believe he said barbarians uh, sometimes need a strong hand. Where did I underline that? <laughs> it made me laugh to think of barbarians in 1850. <laughs> but, so I think he he doesn't. Exp- I'm not sure if he explicitly does this, but he implicitly extends this i think this logic to suicide as well that uh Mm -hmm. that you are you're not the principle of freedom as you said you read the principle of freedom cannot require that he should be free not to be free so so i think that that idea extends to suicide as well because you could argue like well you're only harming yourself the same with slavery Uh, i i also like it seemed very british to the what you were saying before about Oh, things should be legal, but not in public. That's bad manners. <laughs> you know, that's, that seems so, so very. Uh, even as he's describing something that you know, in in our modern context, would sound very licentious. Yeah, do it on the street, like some of these parades we see. You know, whatever. Uh, as a nineteenth-century Briton, he's a little too buttoned up for all that. You, know, you can do it, but uh, you know, as long as you do it behind closed doors. <laughs> It's it, and it, it kind of it's funny, but it also kind of shows what we've talked about in other episodes about how liberty can only exist in a society that is moral, and nobody or very uh, nobody who was not insane in Britain in his day would have said, 
I should have the freedom to uh, fornicate on the street. <laughs> you know, like that, that would not get a decent hearing. Now you might be able to re- get a column in the New York Times. I don't know. You know, at least an op-ed, because we've sort of lost that traditional mor- morality. And that's it, it, these arguments. I think hit differently in different times. You know, when against this sort of buttoned-up Victorian society, Mill Mill and his ideas are kind of a breath of fresh air. You know, where everything was sort of, oh, I mustn't do that, I mustn't do that, you know, propriety. Well, he's he's sort of saying, let's, you know, if things aren't harming anybody, should we really be locking people up for them? You know, and I mean, there were still, like when he was, the reason he went to work for the East India Company instead of going to university was he would not uh, be a member of the Church of England mm-hmm. because of his beliefs. And in those days, that was it. So if you want to go to Oxford or Cambridge, well, you've got to take the sacrament in an Anglican church, and that's that. So I think things like that would make a man like Mill say, all right, this is a little ridiculous. I shouldn't be able to go to a school. You know, I mean, what what difference does it make? Compare that to the same sentiment in 2022, and uh, it sort of leads to just unparalleled, weirdness and disorder because there isn't that background of traditional morality and traditional propriety and old-timey good manners that lets people say sure i can say anything i want yes if i see the president's motorcade i can yell a curse word at him and it's not gonna it's not a crime but for most people say well maybe i shouldn't you know although you know these days uh i i don't know President Biden never gets to go through a town without somebody yelling curse words at him. He might deserve them, but we used to at least keep them under our tongue. Mm-hmm. Well, this the, his, that story about about not joining the church, I think, is uh, is a good lead into what I think is the most interesting part of this book, and that is his real, his development of I'll just shorthand as as social tyranny. He says when society is itself the tyrant, society collectively over the separate individuals who compose it. Its means of tyrannizing are not restricted to the acts which it may do by the hands of its political functionaries. Society can and does execute its own mandates, and if it issues wrong mandates instead of right or any mandates at all in things with which it ought not to meddle, it practices a social tyranny more formidable than many kinds of political oppression. It leaves few, fewer means of escape, penetrating much more deeply into the details of life and enslaving the soul. And he talks about uh, what we need is protection against prevailing opinion Mm. it needs protection against the tyranny of the prevailing opinion and feeling against the tendency of society to impose by other means than civil penalties its own ideas and practices as rules of conduct on those who dissent from them all that makes existence valuable to anyone depends on the enforcement of restraints upon the actions of other people and he has this really interesting conversation about uh about custom which i mean essentially what he's saying is uh, the, the conformity is imposed by the societal mores and you just I think you just delineated a few from his time with the, these Victorian um, uh, ethics and morals and it's true that mm-hmm. uh, from a Victorian standpoint we are living in a in a deeply decadent age but that doesn't mean that social control doesn't exist <laughs> and I think yeah, it's actually yeah. extremely alive and well right now. And I think it's, uh, I think it's cancel culture. I think it's, uh, I think it's the, 
the, the thought police stuff that's that you know if you don't if you're not on board with the current thing mm-hmm. you know and, and we've gone through so many waves of the current thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> whether it was whether it was covid or social justice or ukraine now pro abortion you know like whatever you 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 have an, a clear idea of what the current thing is by whatever the latest circle around the face of, of your, you know, your Facebook friends, whatever it says or shows <laughs> yeah. is basically an indication. And, you know, for him, he's clearly irritated by the fact that, you know, he's, I'm sure an atheist and not interested in the Anglican church, doesn't want to join it, does want to go to Oxford or Cambridge. He does want to um, partake of the kind of the, the life of the mind, but can't do it because he's, he's a nonconformist. But I think today we have that in spades. I really do. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, in corporate America, and I don't want to speak so far out of turn, but I think in corporate America there is a there is a level of of, of groupthink that's required, and you can dissent to yourself, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and maybe in a text to a coworker, <laughs> yeah, but you are not allowed to say it aloud. You know, I think I think right now you'd be perfectly welcome to protest, riot, throw a fit over the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, I think you would be hard-pressed to get away with doing the same thing on the pro-life side if uh, if you were at work. And, uh, oh, and 100%. It's, that's it's, where we are. Yeah, and it, it's it's so crazy because it's not even... I think I mean, a lot of that thing is ground up from a subset of crazies within each of these companies too i mean like I, I saw today about how employees were demanding that disney take a stand on this like i don't know any i, I i've worked for a variety of companies in my day i never really cared what anyone thought of and in the c-suite about politics except if it affected my job you know i mean when i was uh i was working part-time at sears in high school selling paint it never occurred to me to say i wonder what I wonder what the guys in the boardroom think about campaign finance reform. I, I, they should issue a statement, you know, like whatever the hot issues in the nineties were, you know, like I, I didn't care. I think part of it's um, the collapse of the kind of institutions that were stifling mill in his yeah, day. Right. And I, I think now people are saying, well, you know, I don't really go to church. I don't really belong to any community organizations. You know, I'm mostly at home on my computer and stuff and I'm not on the sports team. I'm not, not doing much of anything, but I do go to work and that's an institution that works. You know, jobs usually do are I mean, jobs are kind of institutions and they do work because the companies keep them working because that's how people make money. So they're, they're still around. And I feel like people are sort of grasping in a way they, they would at one time have gone to some sort of, maybe they, you know, they'd go to the odd fellows meeting or the, or the Freemasons and, and talk about things and maybe expect those groups to have a view on something. But, now uh there's nothing and so yeah now the they insist that the that the corporate bosses get on board with the latest thing and i guess the corporate bosses just do it i'm starting to see some pushback on that too and like the uh like all the people at spacex who took an open letter to criticize their boss in the paper and then he fired them all thank god somebody has some sense i'm not i'm not a big i'm not an elon like maniac like some people some people love the guy i think he's fine but um yeah at least he reminded them that like you know you can't just trash the boss in the papers 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't you can't threaten to cancel your boss. Turns out. Well, you w- you wouldn't have thought so before, but no. He, I, I mean, mean, if and if he hadn't said anything, it, it probably would have kept going on. Like I think a lot of the trouble Disney got into was just was because a few radical employees made such a stink, and they said, "Oh, I guess we better." You know, I guess this is what the people want. And I don't know if it is what the people want, or even what the employees want. But it's what the loudest people want. But yeah, I mean, I, what I love, what I find just find really fascinating about what Mill's saying here. This is a this is an essay on liberty, and when we've discussed liberty and freedom on our podcast, it really is taking us back to the founding. It's it's uh, checks and balances. It's uh, it's rights. It's some responsibilities. It's and what he's introducing here is the idea that that's not the only kind of tyranny. That's not the only kind of control. Mm-hmm. You, there is there is government control, but there's also social control, which in some ways can be even much more difficult to overcome because we're talking about culture and we're talking about private companies like Facebook or Twitter that are that exercise editorial power over over what you say and what you can do but even more than that it's it's the coworkers you know so mm-hmm. i am skeptical that uh, that so many employees feel this uh, this progressive um, but they deserve the, some credit for their ability to really press their views and make it completely toxic and unacceptable to have opposing views. And by doing so, it's very similar to, I, th- I think, what what Mill probably experienced with the church in that there's just dissent is just not accepted and you are a pariah and it's just completely radioactive and toxic and so your choices are are extremely limited. Yeah, it, it is like sort of living in a a, a country with an established church. Because I mean, Mill wasn't persecuted for being a nonconformist, not in the sense that they were in previous centuries. And he wasn't thrown in jail. He wasn't subject even to any extra taxes. But if you wanted to move up in society, if you wanted to get into certain institutions, you just couldn't. And that's that feels a lot like somebody being on the wrong side of various things in a corporation, and then and making the mistake of telling people about it. Like he says, wherever there's an ascendant class, a large portion of the morality of the country emanates from its class interests and its feelings of class superiority. That is, uh, class superiority too, I think is, its feelings of class superiority is a, well, is a phrase that really, I think, emanates today. It's, so let's, it, sorry well, to cut you off, but let's think no, about who is the ascendant class now. Yeah. Where you would have said in the 1950s, probably the church religion the kind of traditional um, moral authority mm. was the authority in America and maybe some of the some of the sort of progressive contingents in America were or you know you could even say uh, minorities and to some extent uh, women were kind of the underclass uh, which are now the uh, ascendant class and mm. I think you can include also in the in the ascendant class the you know upwardly mobile uh, up uh, upscale uh, upper middle class uh, non-believers in religion those that are have their own new religion which is you know some variation of what we would pejoratively call wokeness mm-hmm. uh, that's the ascendant in America right now 
and you're you're seeing that and we're hearing about it nonstop because we're we're hearing about how i mean for the last at least since george w bush's mid um uh second election in 2004 i've heard folks on the left and democrats say that this is a temporary thing. Republicans, you know, going to enjoy it while you can. You're a bunch of mm-hmm. old white men who are going to die out. And we are the ascendant, the coalition of the diverse, and we are going to overtake you. <laughs> and, uh, and to some extent that's happened. And to some extent that uh, has proved itself completely um, foolhardy and, and wrong. But in any case, like that's the feeling of the ascendant class. And certainly it's very certainly the case that those who are religious feel that they are they're the the new underclass. And he says, on the other hand, a class formerly ascendant has mm-hmm. lost its ascendancy or whether its uh, ascendancy is unpopular. Exactly, religion. Prevailing moral sentiments frequently bear the imp- impress of an impatient dislike of superiority. <laughs> right? I mean, we, like, I think the religious in, in America absolutely can't stand um, what used to be called uh, political correctness. Now it's just like straight up wokeness, right? <laughs> it's like, uh, that kind of social control, like you used, you used to some extent be in the majority of, of, of how the, the society was, I don't want to say controlled, but, but how society was organized. And, and now, now that this un- other ascendant group is, has really gained, especially cultural power, maybe not as much political power, but definitely cultural power. Like there's, it's a battle, you know? I don't know if yeah, you think I'm right about that, but no, I think I was going to read that same passage just now. So oh, I'm glad sorry, you it. no, <laughs> sorry. no, it's good. We're on the same page. I mean, literally, we're on the same page of this book, but we're we're also on the same page in what we're thinking here, and it's absolutely. And, and the, when I I think a lot of the um, real mania for enforcing conformity on the rising left is is because they are that ascendant class in their own, at least in their own minds, and they think they're they're going to continue to rise and it's those who are rising who want to shut everybody else up or those who think they they've won. They want to say, all right, well, that's enough out of you because we've won. We don't need to hear from you anymore. Your time is over. Like you were saying, like they've been saying with the demographics is destiny thing for 20 years, which I think has fueled a lot of bad feelings and reactions that they probably should have anticipated. You know, when you tell a group that you're about to be phased out and eliminated and made into a irrelevant rump state, People are going to react to that, <laughs> you know. I mean, people don't like that. But, but that aside, I think that former ascendant group now falling into minority status, at least among cultural movers and shakers, at least among influencers or whatever you want to call it today, the people who are influencing mass culture and, and writing mass culture, and yeah, sure. Now we're uh, it, it's it's like when we read Buckley's book, how he he wanted more. Uh, informity can force to enforced at the university because in his day you know at least among the trustees of the universities and the, and the people running it his ideas were still in power mm-hmm. it was just right. some of the professors were running wild and he thought no we need to bring these guys in line now no no republican would ever say such a thing on a college campus we need more conformity here Absolutely <laughs> not. you know what that means that means he's out of a job right exactly. <laughs> or, or at least told to never open his mouth about anything too interesting again so I think, yeah, now now those people who at one time were very happy with the idea of a society that, if not enforced conformity, at least set up the sort of guidelines of respectability, things that were stifling to Mill and to a lot of other free thinkers in his day, 
the people who were setting up those guidelines were very comfortable with the idea of superiority. And uh, now uh, we, their moral descendants, who are you know left in this counterculture, are uh, we don't like superiority at all. <laughs> we, yeah. we hate being looked down on because we constantly are. We saw the Supreme Court case came out today about the the football coach who got fired for saying a prayer at midfield. Like he wasn't like making the whole team pray. He wasn't, you know, reading the Bible in class or anything even close to, he just, you know, he was a man of faith. Didn't feel like he should have to keep it hidden away. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that, and they fired him for it. And, you know, that feeling of persecution is not unique to that one man and not everyone's getting fired, but they're at least being told, you know, that's, that's enough of that. Don't talk about that at work. Don't mention that name at work. Don't, you know, don't say that at school. And the guy wasn't even trying to, he wasn't trying to enforce a new conformity to his faith. He was just wanted to live his faith in the way he thought was right. And he wasn't doing anything to anybody. And the court actually sided with him for once. But that's, that, that put me in the mind of this as I was reviewing my, my notes for tonight, uh, for this, for this podcast. So yeah, it's just like that, that, People like that guy, that coach uh, Kennedy, are having an impatient dislike of superiority because it's constantly being shoved in their face that other people are superior to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they, he uh, he says too, it's the disposition of mankind, whether as rulers or as fellow citizens, to impose their own opinions and inclinations as a rule of conduct on others. Is so energetically supported by some of the best and some of the worst feelings instant to human nature. It's hardly ever kept under restraint. So I think what you would had was guys like Mill in the 1850s, maybe some liberals, progressives in the 1950s saying, uh, why can't you just let, let everybody have a chance? You know, why does everyone have to? And, and then as soon as they feel like they have control, then very quickly impose their own opinions. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and he says, um, uh, no two ages and scarcely any two countries have decided it alike, basically like what the what the prevailing opinion and what customs are. They're all going to be different. The, the rules which obtain among themselves appear to, to them self-evident and self-justifying. This is all but a universal illusion. I mean, it's I, I love it. And we've seen a little bit of this this week as well because I can't count how many times somebody's posted on Twitter a quote from uh, Macron in France um, talking about how uh, how depraved America is for this Supreme Court ruling. Did you know that in France they have a ban on a complete <laughs> and a total ban on abortion after 14 weeks? It was less stringent than the Mississippi law that was uh, yeah. that was at, uh, at at issue in the case. So uh, there are no two ages, and scarcely two countries have decided this alike. Uh, and when we when we look back and say, you know, we need to we need to tear down our heroes of the past because of this, uh, we're we're projecting our own, you know, uh, our, our our own enlightened morality on them, and they don't measure up. So therefore, they must be destroyed. They must be torn down. I think Mill is totally right when he says that's just an illusion. You know, this is a thing that you've decided. This isn't the arc of history bending towards anywhere. 
It's the arc of history bending towards you're in control, so it's bending in whatever direction you're trying to take it. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's the funny thing about the progressive movement is the arc of history always bends right to the to the very thing they're campaigning for that year. Right. <laughs> it's, I think, I, I would think some of them are starting to realize that, but I don't know. I, I remember talking to a, a friend of mine who was on the left um, after after 2016. He said, "Boy, I don't." I'm starting to think maybe there isn't an arc of history. Maybe things just happen. <laughs> I said, yeah. yeah, you know, like it's, <clears throat> I, I would, I mean, I, as a Christian, I believe God has a plan for mankind, but I don't have the first clue about what that is. I mean, and I don't think anybody else does either. You know, maybe we can guess at things, but we don't know. We always think we know. And it's an illusion. Like Mill says, you know, we, we don't know where things are leading. We, we try our best. We have, you know, we have some brains among us and we, we try to sort things out, but it is, it is so easy as he talks about throughout this essay, it's just fall into this idea that what I want and what I believe is, is actually the pure good. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a universal principle. And I think Mill is honest with himself in questioning some of the things that he thinks probably he would never do. Like some of these things that he thinks are bad manners, you know, but he at least, um, I, I think, is respectable to, that he questions those ideas, and, and, and I think you see, and you know, social media can distort things, but I, th- I think especially on there, you see a lot less self-questioning. I mean, maybe it's always been that way. Now, I mean, when we were young, you didn't actually know what all your neighbors are thinking about every issue because yeah. they weren't. They weren't. There was no. There was no Facebook. There was no place where people just yelled their ideas and we didn't put signs on our lawns explaining all in detail all of the latest things that we're into <laughs> you, know, you, you didn't know there was one guy in my neighborhood who had a big sign on his lawn that said u.s out of u.n <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what his exact beef was but i, I just everyone knew that guy was kind of crazy about some issues and you just didn't bother everybody else <clears throat> you'd never know so maybe it's always been this way but it certainly seems more evident now and more provable now that people are not good at introspection and, and it's um i think mill would would point out the folly of that like you're saying no two ages are the same and who knows what how we'll view these recent events 30 years from now or 50 years from now but i'm sure it'll be different and and maybe with its own biases and its own incorrect analysis but it'll be a different one um which i think guess leads back to mill's point of can't we just let people do things that don't harm anyone? Is that yeah. is that so much to ask? Yeah, so I think in the last couple of minutes it's worth mentioning his, I think what I would shorthand is kind of what he views as the realm of freedom, but he calls it appropriate region of human liberty. He says it comprises first the inward domain of consciousness, demanding liberty of conscience in the most comprehensive sense, liberty of thought and feeling, absolute freedom of opinion, and sentient on all subjects. So, I mean... That's a that's a realm where he thinks that the uh, humans should be totally free. Of course, I think he's going to get a lot of takers for that. Um, mm-hmm. Secondly, the principle requires liberty of tastes and pursuits of framing the plan of our life to suit our own character. I mean, this is the pursuit of happiness, right? Of doing as we like, subject to such consequences may follow without impediment from our fellow creatures, so long as what we do does not harm them, even though they should think our conduct foolish, perverse, or wrong. And I think I think both sides would both agree with that and then out of the other side of their mouth very quickly say, accept that. <laughs> <You know>? mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. And, uh, 
All right. And thirdly, he says, from this liberty of each individual follows the liberty within the same limits of combination among individuals, freedom to unite. So free, uh, for any purpose, not involving harm to others, the persons combining being supposed to be full of, of full age and not divorced or deceived. So, so, uh, uh, freedom to congregate, uh, freedom to peaceably assemble. He's saying to us the three freedoms where we need a, this realm of, of human liberty would be our inward domain of consciousness. No one should ever force you what to think or, or uh, how to feel. Second, no one should tell you how to, uh, what to like, and what not to like. And no one should tell you that, they, that you can't do something that you want to do that's not going to hurt anyone else. And third, we should be able to unite as individuals and uh, find common ground, be able to peaceably assemble, to have groups, to have friendships, um, as long as it's not hurting anyone else. What do we think of those? Sounds like a pretty good charter. I mean, uh, and I like that he's 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 not so much talking just about like this should be a law, this should be a law, but th- this more like this is the way to live. Yeah, and that's that's where rights start out before their laws, their their ideas, and their customs, and that. Yeah, I mean, this sounds like a pretty good setup for a community. You know, people should just live and let live, basically, uh, to the extent you're not hurting people. He says shortly after that, the only freedom which deserves the name is that of pursuing our own good in our own way, so long as we do not attempt to deprive others of theirs or impede their efforts to obtain it. Yeah. I think that, that sums up, if you're looking for you know the one one sentence summary, I think that's that's it and and he unpacks it in those in those three points that you gave it's uh i think it's something like you said i think it's something a lot of people would agree to uh with a few reservations and each person would have his own reservations about what those are but um it's it's uh it's good i think it's good to keep in mind in these days where liberty is in some fields on the wane and threatened especially that sort of social conformist liberty that or or unliberty that is coming in from various directions anymore it's good to uh it's good to keep these things in mind i think this is a good uh, just a good example of what it means to be free yeah that's a good closing sounds like a good place to end that's john stuart mill catch us next time